This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to San Francisco City Insider, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people in politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here today with Alex Kral, one of the world's preeminent experts on safe consumption sites, where people who use drugs can legally shoot up or smoke inside under supervision. He's a fellow at RTI International, an independent nonprofit research institute dedicated to improving the human condition. And he's also a resident of Glen Park. Alex Kral, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, we're here today to talk about safe injection sites. I know there's other terms that are also used, safer injection sites, safer consumption sites. Um, can you explain what those are and why they're a good idea? Yeah, so safe consumption sites are essentially places where people can bring their uh, pre-obtained drugs in to use them um, safely within the site while they're being monitored by um, somebody in case of overdose or other kinds of medical issues. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I think that that's the basics of them. Yeah. yeah, it sounds very controversial when you first hear about it, and a lot of people assume it's a bad idea that you're basically saying it's fine to do these drugs. But what do you think is the you know the benefit to society of having these? Well, you know, there's been a lot of research. Uh, these have been existing since the mid-80s, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, they exist in 10 different countries uh, in Europe, uh, Canada, mm-hmm. and Australia. And the research is pretty clear that they uh, benefit both the people who use them um, and the communities that they're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the people who use them, um, they reduce the likelihood of overdose death. Mm-hmm. Um, they reduce HIV and viral hepatitis transmission. Um, and they facilitate getting people into drug treatment and mm-hmm. other kinds of uh, health and social services. Uh, in terms of neighborhoods, um, they found that the neighborhoods where these are put into, um, they have uh, reductions in crime. They have um, less public uh, needles, less needles in the streets, mm-hmm. um, and less public injection. Mm-hmm. So they really seem to benefit both the community and uh, the people who use them. Mm-hmm. Has there been any look about whether they draw dealers to the block where they're located? Yeah, there was a study up in Canada that looked at that, and it does not seem to uh, bring dealers into the neighborhood in mm-hmm. any kind of way. Cool. And um, for a couple of years, San Francisco, as well as some other cities, including Philadelphia and New York, and I believe Seattle, have been kind of on the verge of opening one, but I don't think any American city has officially done so, right? Well, there's um, there's no sanctioned sites. Right. Uh, I've been evaluating an unsanctioned site mm-hmm. somewhere in the United States, but yes, those are there's about seven or eight cities that have mayors who have publicly said they want to open these sites, mm-hmm. um, and they're in various different stages of figuring out how to do that. Mm-hmm. What do you think is holding um, these mayors back, or what do they need to figure out? 
Um, you know, it's uh, that's a complicated question. Uh, it's different in different cities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're. Um, it, it looks like they're on the verge of opening one in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps even as early as later this month. Wow! Um, after they had a big legal, um, uh, I'd say battle, I mm-hmm. guess there um, against the that where and they had a win in the courts, right? And they had to win the courts, mm-hmm. and so I think they're about to open that up. They're pending one more judgment to see if they can open while there's an appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the main thing that's holding them back there is waiting for that right mm-hmm. now. Um, in other places, it's there's been some political opposition. Um, you know, there are, um, you know, there are, uh, um, you know, Seattle essentially has been trying to open one for a long time. Um, they are the only city that has made the decision um, that it would be on uh, city property by city employees. Um, and... Uh, my understanding of what's going on up in Seattle is it's been hard to figure out the best site for that specifically, where that would be, mm-hmm. such that it would be a you know uh, a site that would be good for both the community that needs to use it, but also the community uh, around there. Yeah. Last time I wrote about the issue here in San Francisco, which was a couple months ago, the mayor has a plan. She wants to open one in a mobile clinic outside a facility, maybe like Glide or uh, outside a nonprofit that already exists, but not in the building so as not to put whatever building that is, in legal jeopardy. Um, But uh, her administration is not going to open that until um, President Trump is out of office. And I was wondering what you think of that decision. Yeah, that's the first I've heard of that. Um, uh, And of course, we don't know how long Trump will be in office. (laughs) Uh, That could be one more year or it could be five more years Mm -hmm. uh, or even, I guess, (laughs) depending on (laughs) who you pay attention to, I guess it could be more. But but um, so that's that's news to me. I know that she has been a big proponent of opening these sites, and uh, certainly was during the last election mm-hmm. um, and her, the first, uh, you know, the first election as well. Uh, and um, you know, I, I think that you know the concerns I imagine for her, but I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, would be you know legals and you know federal government come in and, and shut it down or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but she's uh, worried about the people who work who work there getting arrested and jailed potentially or assets being seized. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, you know, with Philadelphia potentially opening, first of all, having won that lawsuit there mm-hmm. uh, and then potentially opening and maybe seeing how that goes. Maybe that might change her mind, depending mm-hmm. if that goes well or not. I don't know. Do you think it's a wise decision to hold off or would you recommend if you were her advisor to just go for it and let the chips fall where they may? Um, that's a good question. Um, so last year and really the last couple of years, uh, over 70,000 Americans have died of overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of people dying of overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, in the tens of millions of times that these sites have been used um, internationally, um, no one's ever died of an overdose in one of these sites. Wow. And so if you think about that juxtaposition of having all these deaths in the U.S. right now and um, deaths are spiking uh, in San Francisco over the last couple of years mm-hmm. now because of the fentanyl epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you know, I think it's – we need to have these. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, they are the only thing that we know that is proven to 
to uh, to work in mm -hmm. order to save people's lives mm -hmm. if they're overdosing. Um, and so I think you need to move ahead of them. This mm -hmm. is why Philadelphia is doing that. Um, and I think a lot, a lot of other cities as well. Um, you know, whether she, it's wise for her not to do it or wait, um, you know, I think the big question for me there is, it, it, from a legal standpoint, it isn't really any different than cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, um, you know, the city already has um, authorized, which is federally illegal, um, you know, cannabis dispensaries here. Um, and in fact, uh, places uh, and the city has permits for uh, places uh, where people can actually buy um, uh, cannabis and use it on site. And so they already have drug consumption sites mm -hmm. uh, that are permitted by the city. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a matter of what drug is it. Mm -hmm. um, now, all the drugs we're talking about are illegal federally, so there's right. actually no difference uh, between the cannabis that they're currently permitting being used and, say, heroin or methamphetamine mm -hmm. or cocaine that's mm -hmm. being you know that would potentially be more more likely to, to mm -hmm. be used at some of these sites. Um, so, in that sense, um, I'm not sure. Um, it, you know, frankly, we we actually need. Um, safe consumption sites where people are using those other drugs mm -hmm. way more than we would need consumption sites where people are using cannabis. Because it's not killing people. Because right? it's not killing people, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So in some ways, it's backwards yeah. in my mind, yeah. Has the um, t the name of these changed to consumption because it's not just for injection drugs? Yeah, so... Is all kinds of drugs are used in the foreign Yeah, <laughs> so depending, um, you know, some are safe injection sites because they just are about people injecting, but mm -hmm. others, people are smoking. Mm -hmm. For example, they might be smoking crack cocaine mm -hmm. or they might be smoking fentanyl even. Um, and so depending on the site... Um, are there any work that allow meth that you're aware of? Sure, yeah. they all do. They all do. Yeah, they all do. Hmm. Uh, it's not really... Um, there's no none that I know of, and there's there's about... You know, at this point, I think the last latest count is about 160 of these programs around the around the world. Mm -hmm. um, none that I'm aware of um, specify the kinds of drugs that are allowed mm -hmm. to be used. So you can use any drug you'd like to use. Interesting. Um, but there's some that are set up for just for injection and some for smoking. The, mm -hmm. the key about the smoking is you need to have ventilation. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, which can be expensive. It can be like one of those restaurant hoods or something mm -hmm. like that, which are expensive to to, to buy. Um, some but place, you would think that would be valuable in San Francisco to allow both smoking and injecting. Uh, yeah, I definitely think yeah. so. You know, and I think especially with, you know, the advent the last few years of fentanyl, um, I think that's even more important because people are much more likely to smoke fentanyl uh, than they are to inject it even. Mm -hmm. And so lots of people overdosing just smoking it. Hmm. So we need to make sure that they uh, are okay as well. Mm -hmm. And as you alluded to earlier, you've been um, studying an unsanctioned safe injection site for a number of years Right. How many years have you been looking at that? Five years five now. Years. That's been functioning a little bit over five years. Okay. And um, you've never disclosed where this is, True. right? But True. it's a city in America. It's a somewhere, somewhere in the United States, exactly. A city? Yes. Okay. Um, and you visited this place a number of times? I have. Yeah. And what are you finding there? Um, you know, it's uh, been really successful in the sense that people are using it. They're happy to use it and they're coming there to mm -hmm. use it. Um, there has been um, about three dozen overdoses at the site. Oh, wow. um, all of them were saved by the professionals that are working mm -hmm. there. Um, and so no so, deaths? No deaths, no. Just like there have been no deaths at all the other 160 mm -hmm. sites around the, the, the world. Um, and so in that sense, it's been really successful at saving people's lives um, uh, right then and there. Um, 
And it's also provided a sense of community for the people who are in there mm -hmm. um, such that they feel like there's a place they can go and talk to people and, you know, receive counseling and, um, and camaraderie mm -hmm. and, and, and talk about the kinds of concerns they might have in their lives. Mm -hmm. Is it run by a nonprofit or who is actually um, operating it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, does the neighborhood around it know that it's there? Like how, how known is this place? It's uh, – it's not known about the neighborhood around it, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there may be some people that know around it. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's been interesting uh, in my mind because it's been operating now for um, a little bit over five years, mm -hmm. five and a quarter years. Um, and obviously it's not, you know, it's not explicitly legal. Uh, it's not specifically um, you know, uh, um, they, they don't talk about it. They are they are closed about it. Um, yet the people don't know about it everywhere. And so it's been interesting because, mm. you know, there's at any given time, there's maybe 50, 60 or 70 people or maybe up to 80 people or so that are currently, you know, involved in using it. Mm -hmm. And yet the sort of message hasn't gotten out there or they oh. haven't told people about it or, or journalists. All the types or, of drugs that you mentioned before are used there? They use, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And we keep track of the kinds of drugs they use there, yeah. Do you know if the mayor of the city knows about it, of the city uh, that it's in? Um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know that. Yeah. And they're not um, being open about it because? Well, they're, I think they're, uh, you know, they're afraid that the federal administration would come down on them, I think, yeah. And when you go there, what does it look like and um, how do you perceive it in terms like what is, if you could describe, you know, visually what you see? Yeah, it's a pretty simple place. I mean, these aren't um, th these aren't as extraordinary as they might seem. Mm -hmm. um, you basically have two rooms. You have uh, one large room that's got um, comfortable seating for people to sit and, and be. Um, and then you have a, uh, a smaller room um, that is uh, where injections happen. Um, and um, in that room, um, you have stainless stainless steel. Uh, benches and mirrors, and they get, um, you know, for free, they get uh, clean equipment to mm -hmm. make sure that, the, you know, that's clean. Um, and they have um, somebody who then collects some data with them, and then they um, are there to provide counseling or help and also monitor, make sure that they are okay. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really not any more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. um, it's just two rooms um, um, for people to be, and one of them they use. Like I said. And um, have you looked at what has happened to the neighborhood around it? Like if there's more or less needles on the ground or open air drug dealing usage or dealing or anything like that? Yeah, we're in the middle of doing some of that research mm -hmm. and we haven't uh, gotten to uh, we're analyzing the data mm -hmm. right now and we haven't published that data yet. But okay. we are looking at that. Yeah. OK. Does it look like it's going to be good news or bad news? <laughs> I can't tell you. That yet. <laughs> <laughs> OK. I'm Heather Knight and I'll be right back after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'm back with Alex Kroll. You're also an expert in overdose prevention and education, and um, San Francisco continues to see scores of OD deaths every year. In addition to opening one of these sites, do you think that there's something else the city can be doing to prevent these? 
Uh, that's a good question. I, you know, um, I, I do think housing is a big issue mm -hmm. in general, and that hurts, uh, you know, overdoses as well. Um, we do have more overdoses because, uh, in part, because of the environments that people are uh, are in and mm -hmm. where they're where they're using. If you're, um, you know, one of the, one of the big pieces of of the puzzle here is that if people are using outside, they're having to rush their shots. Basically, they're having mm -hmm. to hurry up their injections because they don't want people to see them or mm -hmm. they want to be seen by people, whether that be, you know, families or or just people walking by or or the police even. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that's a that's a particular problem with with something like fentanyl, whereby you really want to you know in order to, to to be to be using that more safely, you want to be able to test a shot, and see see whether it has fentanyl in it, or see how much there is, mm -hmm. and and really you know use it slowly mm -hmm. um, to not sort of just get the whole shot in one, um, because that's where that's where a lot of the problems have come in, in terms of people overdosing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so providing both these sites, but also places for people to live is an important component to the overdose situation, mm -hmm. um, in, in, you know, here, um, other than that, there's, there's a couple of other big things. Um, one is fentanyl test strips, uh, which I don't know if you've uh, heard much about, yeah. but they, uh, these are basically, um, just a $1 little strip. It's almost like, um. A pregnancy test almost, but it's a, almost a paper little strip. It's uh, it's uh, maybe four inches long or so, and it's, it was developed uh, with um, for testing urine for people like doing drug testing. Let's say mm -hmm. you have a company and you want to drug test your your, your employees mm -hmm. or something like that for urine. But um, people who use drugs. Um, who almost always are the ones to figure out the best solutions for their own lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we need to acknowledge that. Um, they figured out that you could actually touch the dope with these these uh, small uh, test strips and they would tell you whether there's fentanyl in them or not. Mm. Um, that's really important because uh, if people uh, people need to know if there's fentanyl Where or not. Where do you get trips. those? Um, the syringe exchange programs mm -hmm. uh, hand those out, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that's a big that's a that's a big thing happening here as well, and that's been happening around the country. Mm. Um, are they handing that out in San Francisco? They are handing oh, that out in San Francisco. That. Yeah, mm -hmm. and they are handing it out in many different states, and this has been going on for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. um, again, the federal government has been hesitant on these. Um, the substance use, uh, the substance um, Sam, Sam said this, the. Um, federal administration that that uh, uh, that's involved with the substance abuse and mental health services. Um, they the the head of that has been against these hmm. be, because they basically think that it's a way of enabling people to use. Um, but uh, but I think that and, and we don't really have good research on mm -hmm. them yet. Um, Would you mostly use them to test heroin? Specifically, or could it be other? Actually, it could be other because there have been, you know, there's a lot of people talking about how at times even stimulants like methamphetamine or cocaine have been uh, contaminated with fentanyl. And mm -hmm. so people don't know that they have that in them as well. Mm -hmm. And so if you have one of these uh, test strips, again, they're just $1. They're very cheap. Mm -hmm. um, you can test to make sure that you you don't have fentanyl in there. Some San Franciscans are confused by City Hall's policy of giving free needles to people who inject drugs without requiring that the dirty ones be returned. It used to be a one-for-one -one exchange, and now it's not. Um, how would you explain to people who are confused by that why that's a, a good switch to have made? 
Um, yeah, that's an old, uh, that's a, sort of a blast from uh, the past. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, just, I get emails about this all the time. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've been conducting research around uh, injection drugs in San Francisco since 1993. It's mm-hmm. been, uh, tw- what is that now, 26, 27 years. Uh, much of my early work was around syringe exchange programs. Mm-hmm. And um, together with my colleague, Ricky Bluthenthal and I, we did a lot of work Um looking at what kinds of things work and don't work, not just do needle exchange programs work, because we do know that they work. They reduce HIV, hepatitis Mm -hmm. C, um, and help to facilitate people getting into um, other kinds of services. Um, And uh, one of the things that we found was that um, we compared, uh, at the time, we compared all the needle exchange programs in California at the time. This was in 2000 to 2002. At the time, there were 23 programs in the the state. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I think we're... I think there's above 50 at this point. Uh, but at the time, and we compared the programs that were these one-for-one strict programs mm-hmm. to the ones that actually gave uh, a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found that um, the people who go to the programs that are one-for-one are more likely to reuse their syringes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a concern for HIV and hepatitis. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the main points of syringe exchange programs is to... Uh, reduce the transmission of HIV mm-hmm. and viral hepatitis. And so if that's the goal, then I think we want to make sure mm-hmm. that people are getting enough uh, syringes mm-hmm. uh, out there. People think, whether accurately or not, that the um, giving unlimited needles out has contributed to us seeing so many needles left on the sidewalks. Do you see any link there or not? That's a great question, too. Um, yeah, so we conducted a study in 2009 on exactly this particular issue, and uh, we compared San Francisco, uh, which at the time was had the same policy it has now. Mm-hmm. The, the policy you're talking about, one for one, was something that changed a long f- time ago. 15 yeah, years right. ago. Yeah, so it's a long time ago. Um, and we compared it to, uh, and so at the time, I think the city was giving out about three and a half million syringes a year. Mm-hmm. So uh, about, I don't know whether up to now, but but certainly if, not it's that. It's more than that, I think. Yeah, it might be up to six million or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now I don't have those numbers precisely. But we compared it to a city that didn't have a needle exchange, uh, which was Miami uh, in uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we did was we randomized all the blocks in San Francisco uh, and we did a randomization of a thousand blocks, uh, and we did parks as well. Did mm-hmm. half the parks, including Golden Gate Park, and then we did the exact same thing in Miami. Um, mm-hmm. Randomized a thousand blocks, and, and and then we walked them and and uh, looked for syringes. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, at that time, um, this is two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. Um, we found 20 needles uh, on those 1,000 th- blocks uh, and in the parks a- in San Francisco. Um, and in Miami, I think it was something like 500 needles. Mm-hmm. Um, the rates were crazy different, mm-hmm. uh, much, much worse in a city that didn't have needle exchange mm-hmm. than one that did. Um, now, you might Seems say... Seems like we started seeing a lot more needles We're seeing a lot more that. needles yeah. now, right? So I, I, I'm not uh, discounting that. So if we did that study now, there probably would be a lot more. Mm-hmm. But that tells you it's not really about needle exchange. It's mm-hmm. actually about the conditions of the city as mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. In 2009, um, you know, lots of people who were living at the margins in terms of housing were living in squats mm-hmm. in South of Market. Mm-hmm. Um, they, were living in, they were living and using drugs inside uh, in lots of places that were available. Mm-hmm. But since then, uh, you know, uh, because the tech industry and, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of other, uh, you know, much larger factors, 
uh, around gentrification. Um, people don't have any of those kinds of informal places to use inside anymore. Mm -hmm. And so people are using drugs outside and therefore, well, their needles are also outside. Right. So that's the reason we're seeing way more needles now than we used to. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with needle exchange or mm -hmm. whether there's a one-for-one -one policy or not. Got it. You also look at the interplay between drug use and the criminal justice system. San Francisco has a new district attorney who seems very unlikely to charge people for using drugs and probably also not for dealing drugs. And I was wondering what you think of that and what um, San Francisco could do to prevent so much open-air drug use on our streets. Yes, uh, we do have a change uh, here with, uh, I, I believe, uh, Chesa Bedin was, I, I think it was sworn in today, in fact, yes. right? By so, the time this comes out, he will be officially the DA, but he hasn't been sworn in <laughs> okay, as so, of right now. Right. Um, yes, yeah, so um, drug use, I, I've never really understood why drug use is the purview of the criminal legal system mm -hmm. um, one way or the other. It's actually, um, if anything, it's a health problem or right. a social problem. Um, and so that's a clunky at best. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a generous way of putting it, mm -hmm. um, way to, to use the criminal legal system, mm -hmm. uh, including jails and, and prisons for, yeah. for those sorts of things. Uh, that's not, I, I mean, we've been doing that for, mm -hmm. for decades and decades. And um, we haven't seen any improvements based yeah. on that. Um, there's certainly no research that shows that criminalizing drugs and criminalizing people who use drugs has somehow solved this uh, this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, we have more drugs now than right. we've ever had. Mm -hmm. We have more people using drugs now than we've ever had. Um, and um, really, I think most of that's been, uh, um, it's really been just a racist uh, policy issue mm -hmm. uh, is to figure out ways to discriminate against people and and mm -hmm. and, uh, and and find ways to to put um, to put people who have color uh, mm -hmm. behind bars. Mm. What about dealing? Does um, that belong in the criminal justice system or or not? Um, that's a that's a good question. Uh, that's a tougher question mm -hmm. for me, I think, to ask. Uh, but I, I think that we have this uh, strange dichotomy between dealing and using. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people like these are the same people yeah. uh, for for the most part. Um, and so, again, we're talking about a, you know, we're talking about drug use, which is not really a criminal issue. Mm -hmm. it, it really is a social issue, one way or the other. Do you think the city has enough treatment and other types of social services to address it? Um, no, it definitely does not. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I know we've had in San Francisco since uh, 1997, we've had a treatment on demand a kind of policy where people should be able to have treatment mm -hmm. on demand. Isn't that kind of in name um, only? But yeah, I don't think that's the way it really functions. There's a lot of barriers to that. Mm -hmm. um, but there have been a lot of successes recently uh, with regards to that as well. Um, you know, uh, buprenorphine is a, is a, is a very good uh, drug treatment uh, form of uh, medically assisted treatment. Um, and there have been a lot of barriers to getting that. It used to be sort of more middle class people who had access to it. Um, but the city has started uh, really, um, uh, is, is really a pioneer in getting this out to people through needle exchange programs, for example, where uh, doctors can come and, and prescribe and, and give um, buprenorphine to, to people to start them on treatment there mm -hmm. through their uh, health teams, uh, to, to the you know doctors that are actually going out, uh, you know, these hot teams uh, with the vans that are, are also getting people started on this treatment. Um, and we're really one of the first in the country to do something like that, mm -hmm. which is which is great. Um, and so there are good things happening, um, and that's the kinds of those are the kinds of structural solutions we need to this really complex problem. Mm -hmm. um, we need to, 
you know, make sure people have access to it, you know, mm-hmm. not just that it be free, uh, but also that it's easy for them to to access it and, and that we come to them rather than having them, you know, come all the way up the hill to someplace up in Parnassus or, right. or, or wherever it might be. Do drug outreach programs tend to work where people are actually treatment workers might be actually walking out, you know, around Selma or the Tenderloin and, and yeah. trying to convince people to accept help? Yeah, and and you know I, I've been around long enough now that I've seen the cycles of this. And, yeah. You know, back in the '90s and even in the late '80s, you know, we had way more outreach workers than we do now. Like I never way, see them now. Way more. Yeah. Um, and in the late night, late night, actually, I think it was around 2000, 2005. Uh, yeah, about around that time, we re, uh, the city started to defund that, mm-hmm. and they weren't funding those anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are some great programs, uh, you know, I think of note, certainly, and you mentioned Glide, mm-hmm. um, but there are other places as well um, that, that have these kinds of outreach. Um, San Francisco Drug Users Union, for example, they, they do some good outreach as well. Um, there, there's a lot of these programs, but there's just not enough. Yeah. Um, and really, it's about making a human connection. That's mm-hmm. what everyone really needs one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And so having people out in the streets, talking to people, um, addressing them, you know, their needs at the time, at the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could that could include something like buprenorphine, for example, mm-hmm. um, starting that right then and there, as opposed to you know get on a wait list, come tomorrow to mm-hmm. my office yeah. or, or whatever it is. Yeah, these these outreach programs, we really do need to refund um, those. Mm-hmm. And what is one thing you think the average San Franciscan doesn't understand or gets wrong when it comes to understanding our huge drug crisis? Um, you know, I I. I I understand a lot of the frustrations that people have. You know, they're seeing people uh, injecting um, out and about. Mm-hmm. Um, they're seeing needles. Uh, you know, uh, you know, BART stations mm-hmm. and places like that. Certainly, we've seen the media uh, play a pretty large role in that. But, but, but they also see that themselves. And you know, I don't think nobody wants that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I think that what what you know, p- people seem what, what people sometimes get wrong is they think that people are okay with this, or that people prefer this, or that people would rather do that, mm-hmm. and that that's just a that's just not true. If if we if we had more drop-in centers, we had these safe consumption sites, we had places for people to live, mm-hmm. um, then it would be back to what it was like twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, when we never used to see public injections. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we counted needles back in 2009. Mm-hmm. That's that, only a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And there weren't many, many then either. And mm-hmm. so we could really get back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it isn't the, you know, drug use itself or the people using drugs are, are, haven't changed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, the, it's the conditions that have changed for them that, mm-hmm. that's made it this way. That's interesting. Well, you've survived the serious questions and you agreed to answer some of the sillier questions in our lightning round. Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Ah, oh, okay, that's a good question <laughs> right there, and uh, and a polarizing I know in the city. Now, <laughs> Even more than here I am. Talking I'm talking about, about safe consumption sites, and uh, that's a polarizing enough issue. But this might be even more polarizing, um, especially as I'm probably you know what I might actually go out of the mission, uh, and uh, I actually like like Cornetta in uh, in Glen Park the most. Maybe in parts I, I live close by there, yeah. but I also I, I really like their food as well. That's so. my favorite too. So oh my it's not polarizing within this podcast studio. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> What was the last book you read? Um, right now, I'm reading a book um, about um, the uh, by what's his name Besevich, uh, who 
is writing about the uh, war in uh, the Middle East mm. and essentially American involvement in the mm-hmm. Middle East, uh, really starting with the uh, um, with the Carter administration mm-hmm. through through now. Mm. So well, that's why I'm timely. Really, it is quite timely. <laughs> what was your first concert? Uh, my first concert. You grew up in Sweden, so maybe this is different than what we've heard before. Well, I grew up in Sweden, but I moved to the States when I was 12, and okay. I wasn't really going on concerts <laughs> When you were like that. five. Yeah. When I was five, not so much. Um, uh, my first sort of big concert, uh, I think, was Dire Straits, oh, actually. Nice. Yeah. Uh, you study really intense and somewhat depressing subjects all day. What do you do to have fun in the city? Um. You know, I really like going to see music. Live uh-huh. music is is uh, one of the things I like the most. Um, so that's that's probably the thing I do the most. What's of. your favorite venue? Uh, oh, favorite venue. You know, I really like Bottom of the Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great venue. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Lastly, what is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Uh, well, I'm on a little bit on a on a health kick, mm-hmm. and so I'm walking a lot, and okay. so I'm doing this whole thing where lots of people are doing with counting their steps. Uh-huh. Um, How and many so, are you going for every day? Um, about 10,000 steps. And so doing that early in the morning, have uh-huh. a dog. We walk a dog uh, uh-huh. and, uh, and walk him through to, uh, to Glen Park yeah. and, and, uh, and around. So that's, that's the thing uh-huh. I'm trying to do every day is, is do Great. enough walking. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It was fun to have you. Thank you. Thank you to Alex Kral for joining me today. Thanks to King Kaufman and Karen Creighton for producing this episode and to you for listening. San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.